Hello everyone, welcome to SecTools podcast by InfoSec Campus. I'm your host of the show, Sanup Thomas. Today we have Hoshin with us uh, to talk about a lot of interesting projects that he worked in the past years. Hoshin, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. To start with, probably we'll go years back. Uh, how did you get into InfoSec? So I started doing a software development somewhere around uh, 1999. And then, yeah, somewhere around there. And then around 2004, I was working with Oracle databases, Oracle financials, ERPs, not something very fun, but <laughs> it pays the bills. Uh-huh. And uh, the good thing is that with all the knowledge that I got, I started uh, to try to find more interesting stuff about Oracle databases. I remember that I saw some vulnerability advisory in Backtrack. Look at what times I'm talking about. That was sent by one Scottish guy called David Litfield yep. about some yep. vulnerabilities in Oracle database. Mm-hmm. I took a look to the advisory and I say, hey, let me take a look if I can reproduce that bug. I started uh, doing uh, that experiments in the company's uh, production database, something that is not recommended, but... <laughs> And uh, I found myself in less than one hour finding other vulnerabilities similar to the ones that he reported. Mm-hmm. And this is how it starts, by chance. Then I started publishing uh, all the vulnerabilities that I found free in Backtrack and in full disclosure until somebody told me, hey, do you know that what you are doing for free is actually a job? Oh, really? There is people paying for these kinds of research. Yes. And so I start. I did a vulnerability research at the same time that I was a simple uh, software developer mm-hmm. doing all the stuff. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. I moved to be a DBA, but most of the time I was doing vulnerability research. So after two years or something like that, I decided that it was better to be freelance, stop doing software development for others, and I started doing exclusively vulnerability research, uh, reverse engineering, etc., etc. And until today. That's a long journey. I remember the, I think the the Oracle one that must be like really long back. This is the time when uh, the the unhackable DB stuff uh, was was pretty sure. much noisy. It was this time. <laughs> <laughs> pretty long. Within the level unbreakable is like uh, calling the attention of hackers. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> uh, that that that's uh, pretty much now the trend. Like when you end up calling something as unhackable, and it's just creating a lot of attraction for researchers slash hackers, and yeah, who want to just uh, target those machines. Your researches have actually more towards, I mean, just after maybe the Oracle researches, that's more towards like binaries and like uh, researching on like fuzzing or, you know, those kind of exploit research largely. And you're very focused on those areas. What was your journey like? I think in the in the past days, there wasn't, I don't know if there wasn't like many, many resources where you can actually refer to to learn these kind of stuffs. And how, how did you get into learning these kind of stuff? For, for example, like someone asked you like, hey, um, you can do the same stuff for, for example, like Adobe or uh, or any other similar um, softwares. Which, uh, yeah, I mean, there are there are bounties on it. You can you can get paid for these amounts. But how did you actually get started in these? Uh, now now the scenario is different because there are so much resources online where you can 
freely go and mm. learn about it and there are there are established researchers um and tools also available these days pretty wide open right and what was your yeah. starting like so when i started there was some kinds of information about how to do vulnerability research uh, how to write your own tools for passing how to write some exploits for mm-hmm. corruptions for all the kinds of uh, vulnerabilities but the information was a bit uh, like very scattered all over the internet um one of the things that helped me most was uh, one hackers group uh it was called well, it is called a 48 bits and there was some people that was actually doing the same as i was doing so they helped me i helped them that was very common back in the day i hope it is still today i think but when you were doing something or starting into something you ask hey does anybody know how can i do fasting of this stuff hey i did this or that maybe i can help you doing this or perhaps this idea can help you hey i'm writing this uh, hip overflow exploit and i never uh, exploit a hip overflow oh this is a linked list that you can do this and that more than anything it wasn't what was in the internet but uh, the hours in the irc talking to other hackers then when i was able to learn english which actually took me around 7 years to speak in a way that i didn't look like a stupid is i had uh, more chances to talk to others and be able to read everything that was in english in the internet because at first for me it was too complex english is not even my second language so it took me a while mm-hmm. but yeah start let's talk about diffing right and that's that's pretty much your mastery uh, skills for those who might not be understanding like what diffing and how it actually affects in vulnerability research can you just brief about what diffing is and what's the what's the uh, effect on uh, doing vulnerability research sure so being diffing the term was publicly coined by thomas julian halba plate which is also the guy who initially wrote the first public version of any binding tool out there uh bin diffing is the act of taking two or more subwords and finding either uh what is similar or what is equal between two or more databases and what is different too so for example if we want to search for some vulnerability that was fixed in some patch what we search is not what is equal but what changes from one to the other however let's say that we are working on some target you are revolutionizing it and you put comments in ida in phantoms and then a new version of your target appear you want to import everything you did in the previous version to the current version so in this case diffing is not finding what changes maybe two to put the focus later on to see what the vendor changes but initially it's not like that Initially is finding good matches and importing your work from the previous version to the next version. That's it. Finding everything that is similar or equal, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. basically it is about that. We are not working. The only thing just to to be clear, when we are doing binding, we are working naturally only with binaries. Mm-hmm. We might be lucky and have some symbols, but in most cases we are not going to even have symbols. and it works on not just binaries but it all, it can also works in like actual source code as well so this is another part that was more a research project but finally i found that it worked with uh, i called uh, pigayos mm-hmm. so 
this tool is a bit different. So the Afora is a tool to div binaries against binaries. Ios is a tool to div binaries against source codes. So you take source codes, and when you cannot compile the source, maybe because it was created for some very old compiler, or maybe because the source is partial, or for whatever reason, uh, Pigaios takes the code, use CLANG, analyze all the code, get uh, the abstract syntax tree, extracts some features, applies uh, graph theory to try to find matches and extract some features. And then another tool in IDA does the same for each function that we have in one IDA database, in one binary that we open it in IDA, and then tries to find matches. And that's it, yeah. However, uh, finding matches between binaries and uh, source code directly is not as good as trying to find matches between binaries and binaries. Because uh, <clears throat> what a programmer writes, the code, the abstract syntax tree, which is a tree representing the syntax of the program, is going to be changed a lot. So if we write a function that has, let's say, two duplicates called chunks, when we build it with the compiler, depending on the compiling optimizations and stuff, that's a duplicated chunk are going to be put in just one single chunk. So if we try to compare the AST of what was originally in the source code and then try to compare it to what the optimizer of the compiler optimizes, mm -hmm. and then either analyzes and the optimizer of the, the compiler re-optimizes again, naturally both abstract syntax tree are going to be very different. Compared to the Afora, Pigayos works only 25, for 25% uh, of overall, which is better than zero if you only have partial source code, but it's always worse than doing directly different binaries and against binaries. Yeah, the, the accuracy will have differences, right? Source code versus binary and binary versus binary. But it, it also has server-specific <laughs> cases, like when, when you have source code to diff it, then yeah, that's a, that's a good option as well. Yeah, if you can well, compromise uh, on accuracy. Or when you have uh, either partial source code or source code that you cannot build. Because if you can build, and this is something very common that I also do a lot. Mm -hmm. Let's say you are analyzing some target and you know that there is a source code for a previous version or for uh, it is a fork that then was made commercial. Like for example, let's say that you are analyzing some uh, commercial kernel basis on FreeBSD. Mm -hmm. What I will do is build the FreeBSD kernel. So I have the FreeBSD binary with all the symbols, export it in IDA with the Afora, and then import all the symbols into that uh, commercial kernel basis on FreeBSD that doesn't have any kinds of symbol. Mm -hmm. But because it is a derivative, the matches are going to be very good and we can import everything. This is the case when we have a compilable or bilabel uh, source code. Is there only, only like one, let's say the, the uh, parsing through the ASTs and then, you know, matching it with, with, the, with the symbols? Uh, that's the no, only technique or there are multiple techniques to uh, do the... There are multiple techniques. There's not one single one. So the AST is one. Mm -hmm. But uh, also because the AST cannot be compared one-to-one -one for the reasons that I mentioned, uh, there are some fuzzy matches done. 
So if a percent of the elements of the AST match, then I increase a bit the likelihood of it being used match. Then let's say uh, one of the things that we always use to try to find the synfantians are things like constants. Mm -hmm. If there's some debugging message in one function in the binary and taking a look to the source, I find the same debugging message in some function, I know for sure that it is one. So this is another of the tricks that we use. Uh, constants, not only string constant, but maybe some specific numeric constants, like uh, some something, some hexadecimal big number that you know is not going to appear in other parts. Also things like uh, if there is a loop in the source, it is very likely that there is a loop also in the binary. Mm -hmm. If there is a number of loops in the source, the same number of loops is usually going to be in the binary. Another example is, uh, for example, switch. When there is a switch big enough, because it doesn't happen for a small switch, like, I don't know, a switch with four cases or something like that. Mm -hmm. If there is a switch in the source code, it is very likely that it is going to be some switch dialect depending on the compiler, on the binary after all. And which is more important, we are going to have the same case numbers in both the source code and the binary. So we can say, uh, hey, we have one switch and one switch in this function. And taking a look to the cases, to the switch cases, these are the same. So this is another way that we can do. And then after I gather all these evidences, there is a horribly wrong written by hand function that takes into account this and that and that and performs some adjustment <clears throat> to try to determine how close or how different are uh, that function in the binary and that function in the source. Uh, because it wasn't very scientific, I decided that maybe I could use something a little more scientific. So what I did is uh, try to learn a bit about machine learning, the basics, mm -hmm. and then prepare, I prepared a big set of binaries that I build, I analyze, I train that model with uh, the binaries with the symbols, the binaries with the symbols and the sorts, and then try to apply that function. And that function found uh, very good matches, only in some cases, and it turns out that <clears throat> in most cases, that's horribly wrong pantheon that I wrote myself works better. But then I noticed that the machine learning model that I built found other matches that I didn't even know how to cause them. So now it uses this too. So only one rule, no, it's just a lot of techniques and also two different metrics, one based on a training model, this machine learning, and another one, which is an expert system, if you want to call it, and then it generates an average based on both. Oh, interesting. I think that there is definitely like a lot more areas to explore in these, uh, uh, these techniques, yeah. right? Yeah. And I don't know if any more tools that actually like um, do diffing. I mean, there are definitely other tools also like starting from Bindiff and other alternative tools as well, but there's still more areas to explore in the diffing you know, techniques. Yes, uh, so some of the things that are uh, used as this techniques for, for example, are also in malware batch analysis for massive malware analysis. Mm. So instead of directly different, one of the things that uh, suits techniques, because actually it's the same, are used is 
you analyze each malware sample that you have from a set, or maybe you pull from some queue, the malware samples that are arriving. Then you analyze with, for example, uh, the Afora or with Vindiv, whatever tool. I know that uh, Google internally has an automation using Vindiv and exporting the results for all the things that they receive at Google, right. but I don't think very little things, as you know what I mean. Yeah. I can also uh, myself <clears throat> automations doing this uh, with the Afora, so you export everything. And then uh, the Afora, as well as Vindiv, generates different kinds of signatures for functions and for uh, call graphs. So these signatures that we get from the export part, uh, we call this as indicator of this Pantheon in this malware sample is the same Pantheon that appears in this set of malware families of, of malware samples that appear to be from another family. So these techniques are used, for example, to find uh, correlations between different groups, between a source that was leaked and now different groups or maybe different APD actors, whatever, are using because they are reusing that part of code. We are not literally different. What we are going, uh, what we are using is the output of the export process. And instead of doing the usual diff one binary against the other, we use uh, these signatures that we generate for the control program, for the source code, for whatever it is, to try to find similar functions. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't know that. That uh, I mean, I'm always curious to know like how this, how they are categorizing this as the, you know this specific um, malware yeah. clusterization. Yeah, exactly. Right. That's, so it's it's an interesting knowledge for me personally. You built uh, Diefora first, and then Pegasus happened after that. Yes. So um, I also used to use uh, Bindif a lot back mm -hmm. in the day, and the Synamics, the company that. Uh, built a tool was bought by Google. Yeah. When Google bought a dynamic uh, updates to Bindif were known because they were only interested on those guys porting it to the Google infrastructure and using them. And Google didn't want at first to publish anything. During, I don't know, four years or something like that, the Bindif was best. And also, uh, this is one of the first reasons because Vindiv was subject to Google and there was no updates that I decided to write something. And also because uh, when I used Vindiv, I also had my other scripts to import and do all the stuff that Vindiv didn't do. For example, I'm a heavy uh, local types user. So I use a lot of structs, enums, unions, myself. And uh, Bindif doesn't export uh, structs, enum, unions. Bindif exports uh, names for global variables, local variables, and that's it. Mm -hmm. I want to export everything. If I have, for example, comments in the pseudocode, in the compiler, I also want them. Mm -hmm. If I have structs applied here and there, if I have some union that took me maybe a week to discover, I also want it. Uh, back what I used to do is import with Dimfit and then wrote one script that was actually a, a very early version of the Afora to export the local types, to export where they were applied, and then another script to import after the Bindif pass. Mm -hmm. So when Google stopped the development of Bindif, I decided that that was the time for doing something. 
the initial version of the Afora, the initial proof of concept that you write and say is, it worked. It took me one weekend. It already has uh, that part that I tell you about uh, after importing with Dindiv, what uh, other scripts it has. So it was a matter of adapting them and also adding the exporting phase, exporting for all the functions and stuff. Uh, then I published or I commented in Twitter and in other places that I was writing one uh, Dindiv replacement tool that would be open source. I was amazed because I didn't expect so many people. Basically, everyone was afraid of uh, Google killing Bindiv for good. So that's not that, uh, how to say that, of a surprise. And uh, they found a lot of bugs, a lot of scenarios that I didn't consider during that weekend that I caused that part. I spent, I think it was uh, three months in total, uh, polishing it and adding that feature and fixing that bug and integrating into IDA. At that it was IDA 6.6. So it was in 2015. And then during the conference, SciScan, that you surely know very well, I published it. Yeah, and I mean, that's about how it worked. Clearly, clearly there was a need and that's why people are just grabbing those code and trying to use it. I mean, the more bugs coming coming to your code or, or your um, code repository, that, that clearly means that someone is interested to use it and someone wants to make it better. No, actually, yeah, we have, I have a, a lot of users of the Afora of today. Also people, uh, and this is good, also people many times use both tools. They use Bindiv at the same time because different, different tools are going to find different results, which is obvious. There are some times where Bindiv doesn't find this or that part that the Afora finds, or the other way around, the Afora misses this or that because I don't have that specific heuristic that they did for something, and they complete each other. Also, uh, there are things like uh, Bindix, as I said, and doesn't import uh, structs, unions, enumerations, and anything related to the pseudocode. So I know people that use uh, Bindix, but for importing that part, they use also the Afora. And then there are uh, users that say, well, screw Bindix, I only use uh, the Afora. This is, you, you released the first one in uh, 2015 in SciScan. Uh, 2014, yeah. you pushed the first uh, first code. Yes. Now it's almost getting one decade, almost. Uh, it is 2021 already. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, and it's it's still actively developing. So I have a question here. Yes. How do you maintain the same level of interest in the, you know, how do you call it? Like it's it's like a horse focused. Like you just have a you know, blinded focus on one project and maintaining it for like more than uh, almost 10 years. And I'm definitely pretty sure it goes beyond that. What's the secret? <laughs> Patience. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, it's not my only focus. I'm not, uh, I don't work on it every single week. Also because otherwise I work with farm. I'm just uh, one single person using or writing a tool that is being used by hundreds as of today. And I don't want to get burned. What I do is if somebody reports me something that is critical, something that he or she cannot work for whatever reason it is crashing, then I fix it usually the same day mm -hmm. or in a week. It depends. Uh, it depends also on the time that I have. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
most of the time, what I do is when I want to ask some new feature, then I plan it, I have a moment, and then when I have the time, I just start coding it, and then I try it, and then I implement it. Other moments, not to be working always on the Afora, because I also like to do other research projects, is, for example, if there is going to be a new IDA version, this is the moment to put anything new in, I, in the Afora. Uh, so since uh, IDA 6.6, for every minor version of IDA, before it was published, I got the beta, I tested the Afora, fixed bugs in the Afora, reported bugs in Hexrace tools, get uh, the feedback, implement, and before that new version was published, I published my own version of the Afora working with the previous version and the next version. So what I do is, if there is a new release of IDA, or it is going to be a new release of IDA, is when I work hard on it. When I have some cool idea that I want to do, I do. Or when there is this crashing bug or this very hard to find bug or something that is stopping people from using it, is when I put my phone on it again. But other than that, no, I, I don't work on it weekly because otherwise I will have abandoned it. Mm -hmm. Actually, most of the tools that I know that uh, there were a lot of tools like TurboDiff, Darren Green, EI, different something, TurboDiff 2, and many other different tools, they were all abandoned after a while. Mm -hmm. And not because they didn't work, but because the authors probably got worse of it or simply didn't want to work on them anymore. In my case, I have it more patent and I try not to get burned with it. If I ask you, uh, probably over, yeah, almost uh, ten years of experience and uh, ten years of exp uh, working with this diffing project, right, uh, Difora and uh, Pegasus, what was the most challenging one? Um, do you mean about development or using the tool? In either of it, the more challenging one uh, wasn't actually in the Afora exactly, but in Pegasus because that was research started from zero and was only one academic paper that actually was wrong and there was no source code. So I had no option to start and it was all the ideas that I might have. And it took me around half a year to get it working. Mm -hmm. As for the Afora, um, all the other tools that were at the moment and also Bindif, they don't do anything with the pseudo codes. And I wanted to do also something with the pseudo code. So I have to think about possible signatures. I have to think about new kinds of fuzzy hashes based on the compilation. This is how I wrote some algorithms that are a fuzzy graph-based, but that graph is not a control program for the cold graph anymore, but abstract syntax trees because the compilers tend to generate always the same. So uh, matching between binaries and binaries, the same kinds of abstract syntax tree usually works very well. Mm -hmm. And that was actually very challenging for the same reason. There was nothing when uh, I wanted to develop that. And I had to think uh, from zero and implement from zero and think about how it could be done. It was more uh, research than actual development because when you finally have the idea about how you could do that moment that you say, hey, I know how can I do that? You have the idea in your mind, then I take pen and paper and still one of the size. Mm -hmm. I wrote in the paper, I do my diagrams in the paper and I said, okay, now I know what I want to write. 
as for example, the abstract syntax tree based passive uh, hashes, it took me like uh, one afternoon to write, but it took me, I don't know how long time thinking about how I could how I develop that. Yeah, I was expecting uh, Pegasus would be more challenging than Typhor because because of some yeah. examples, right? And there is no references for that. It's, it's one of a kind. If you want to advise maybe a uh, 10 years back yourself, how what do you mm-hmm. tell to yourself? You are doing right. Keep going. <laughs> <laughs> Is that the same same advice when when someone someone approach you said that hey, I want to get into infosec, I want to get into maybe fuzzing or exploit research. What's the what's the go-to word for you? A uh, goal. I need a goal. <laughs> so I, I don't have a goal to be honest. I just do the things that I like and some things that maybe could help others. Mm-hmm. This is something that I know that every person that knows me knows that I'm always open to help others mm-hmm. because I also remember that I was helped back in the day by others, many anonymous. And it's something that uh, I believe that in the hacker culture, that's very good. That's still, we try helping others and stuff. So well, but about goals, I don't really have a goal to be honest. <laughs> yeah, I mean you're pretty uh, pretty actively helping people uh, even on Twitter if someone ask you a uh, um, maybe if, uh, regardless of the 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 complexity of questions you're always helping and answering them. Yeah, thanks for contributing to those those uh, tweets and and to the communities and that's kind of keeping a sanity in the in the community. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> Yeah also uh, definitely good to look up to and yeah it's, it's also um, giving a good atmosphere for the young generations of the young people who want to get into the same research or same same kind of uh, studies and they get they get some feedback from people the IQ it is it is very generous i wish you all the best for your future projects Thanks everyone for listening to the podcast. We'll see you in the next one.